Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. As always, I am your decoder, Simon Wemsey. One of my writers in this case, Ilza. Thank you, Ilza. Writes me a script. She's put together today The Secrets of Agatha. Never heard of this. I have no idea what this is about. That is, of course, the format of this show. I have a fat old script in front of me, and I have no idea what's going to happen. Maybe you don't either, and we're going to go on a wonderful exploratory journey together. So let's get started. I have a pretty amazing job. You got another job because it's not this one, Elsa. Ah, I write for an Unsolved Mysteries channel. Oh, it is this job. That's nice. So every time I sit down to write a script, I realize that I have to suspend my disbelief in order to tell a good story. I approach every project with the goal of finding some truth, and mostly, I succeed. Most mysteries have some logic behind them. Admittedly, you might need to do the Macarena upside down like a drunken bat hanging from the roof of a dark cave to see the logic, but it is often there. So, I apologize in advance. The idea of Agatha is enticing, and there are certainly some interesting snippets, but the majority of this very solved mystery I'm about to present to you has very little logic behind it. Instead of just suspending my disbelief, I have to pack it in a heavy suitcase and drop it down a very deep well. I suggest, dear listener, that you do the same, so let's get to it. Oh my god, I struggle to do this. I know, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, oh no, Ilza's like... I feel like this is a subtle criticism of me, because whenever I read these, I'm like, no, no, no. So it's like the aliens came, no, the ghosts, no, the de- no, demons! It's not not real. The closest we get to demons are the people that I feature on my other podcast, The Casual Criminalist. In the spring of 1829, a Norwegian fisherman and his son, Olaf, set out to find the lands beyond the North Wind. The further north they went, the stranger the journey became. The many icebergs they encountered were expected, of course, but soon their compass no longer worked. The needle just pressed up against the glass. To make matters worse, they got caught in a storm. After several hours of their small boat being tossed about like a child's toy, the water finally calmed and in the distance they saw a small reddish sun. Whenever I hear about boats on choppy waters, I feel like it just reminds me of... I'm generally fine on boats, calm seas, doing great. It gets a little bit choppy. (laughs) That boat starts moving around, I'm going to be sick. Like, I don't get car sick, I don't get plane sick, I don't get anything sick. But put me on a boat and make the water really choppy and I am going to chunder absolutely everywhere. Violently and repeatedly until there's nothing left and it's fully miserable. I remember once... I was, I can't remember where it was. It was somewhere I was like in Asia or something. I was backpacking and uh, there was this speedboat that took us to, took me to some islands or something and it was so rough and I'm just like curled up in the corner of the deck just in like my swimming shorts or whatever with a bag close to my mouth that is just filled with sick and it's like an hour's ride or whatever and I'm just like on the ground just heaving into this bag just dry oh god it was such a bad time initially they shrugged it off as a mirage but as they sailed on the sun became bigger until they realized it wasn't only real it was a planet of some sort onwards they sailed until finally they spotted land they anchored in a river and went ashore but none of it made sense a green tropical island in the far north 
However, if they thought things could not get any stranger, they were wrong. While gathering nuts, they heard singing and a ship came into view. They watched in amazement as the ship came towards them and twelve giants disembarked, twelve feet tall, friendly and curious. The singing giants invited the fisherman and his son on aboard their ship and so began a visit to the lands of giants that would last for almost two years. This is a fictional story. This is obviously not real, but because this is an episode of Decoding the Unknown, there are truly people out there who believe that this is not some old story slash myth, which it clearly is. Olaf and his father spent their time well. They learned all about the giants, their language, similar to Sanskrit, culture, their customs. They learned that the giants were a good-natured musical race with an average lifespan of 800 years. The giants took them on trips, not the acid kind, though I kind of understand why you might think that, rather to show them the advanced technological wonders of their world, and they revealed an amazing secret. The Earth is hollow. Oh, this is a hollow Earth story. I like this. Here we go. This is well-trodden familiar territory for this channel. The earth being hollow, when obviously it's it's not. It's really solid. I mean, there's maybe some caves in it, but that's about it. And I don't mean like in down in the center. I mean like close to the surface. It's not hollow though. It's really not. It's full of magma and shit. Olaf and his father had entered through one of the openings in the North Pole. The waters of the ocean flowed into this opening and continued on the inside, held to the underside of the Earth's crust by the laws of gravity. Because throwing a little bit of science goes a long way to prove that you know what you're talking about. Well, you obviously don't, because gravity doesn't work in opposite directions, does it? It's not like, oh yeah, no, it... it, it as well as falling, I also could just jump up infinitely into the sky, because gravity also works the other direction. Of course it doesn't, that's insane. There's only one continent, and in the center of the Earth, a single sun provided the giants with all the warmth they could ever need. During a visit to the capital, a lush garden city called Eden, the very same Eden Adam and Eve got kicked out of, they met the high priest, the ruler of this fantastical world. The two fishermen spent some time with the high priest, telling him all about the world outside. They were invited to tour throughout the realm as much as they wished, and tour they did. However, after two years, they decided they'd had enough of the good life and wished to return to the surface. The journey would be dangerous, they knew, but they attempted it anyway. The journey, this is this is a nice story. I'm enjoying this story. It reads like a story that I'd read my kid in the evening. It's nice. The journey was successful, and they managed to return to the outside world, but sadly, Olaf's father died, and Olaf himself got stranded on an iceberg. Luckily, he was rescued and returned to civilization. Upon returning home, he told everyone about his amazing voyage to the center of the Earth and was promptly admitted to an asylum. No surprises there, was he really? <laughs> Is it? It's going? Uh, yeah, no, dude, that's not real. What are you up to? You were on that iceberg so long, somehow surviving for two years, that you've literally gone fully insane. You've just gone absolutely batty. Once he got out, he returned to the life of a fisherman, never said another word about his adventure, and finally retired to California. It was only, wait, in the 1800s? I guess so. I guess so. I'm not sure. My American history's not that good. When was California? When was that period where they all went west? The gold rush? I feel that was the 1800s, right? It was only on his deathbed that he told the story one last time to his friend and neighbor, novelist George Willis Emerson. And let me guess, George Willis Emerson published a story which we just heard all about. Emerson, an American novelist, immediately set pen to paper and wrote The Smoky God, or Voyage to the Inner World, which was published in 1908. He swore that it was a true account as told to him and not a work of fiction. So, did Olaf Jansen travel to a secret world and meet some musical giants, or was Emerson a far better novelist than he seemed to realize? Let's delve into the secrets of Agatha and see if we can find an answer to that question. I already know the answer. He's a good... He, he wrote a story. Also, it could be bad. If it's published as a work of fiction, just entirely as a work of fiction, then it's like, okay, this is just not very good. It's just kind of a descriptive 
store a boring story about a dude who goes into the center of the earth and meets a high priestess. There's no stakes. There's no story. There's no hero's journey. There's just uh, just a description of the inner earth. And but if you say it's all fact, people are going to be much more interested. Like that Da Vinci Code book. It's like all based on fact. It's like, is it though, Dan Brown? Is it? Is it really, Dan? Because it doesn't seem like it is, Dan. Does it, Dan? Welcome to Agartha. So, what exactly is Agartha? Well. That's going to depend on who you ask. There are as many versions of the tale as there are storytellers to tell them, and you really can't rely on science because, as we all know, the government is in control of all academic institutions, and those guys simply cannot be trusted. Yes, people truly believe this. The Flat Earth people, that's a much more popular one. People actually believe this stuff all around the world. They believe this stuff crazy. Contrary to what science wherever you believe, the Earth is in fact Hollow! The Earth's crust is around 800 miles, that's around 1,200 kilometers thick, and at each pole there's an opening around 1,400 miles, that's 2,200 kilometers across. I think we'll be able to see that on Google Maps, to be honest. That's a big hole. The edges of these openings gently curve from the outside of the Earth's shell to the inside. That means that a ship, or I suppose a swimmer, if they were so inclined, could travel from the outer sea to the inner sea without realizing it. Of course, the fact that the South Pole is a continent, Antarctica, which is roughly the size of the US and Mexico combined, and the North Pole ice cap is frozen all year round means that very few sailors or swimmers will ever get near the opening. But don't expect too much logic in this episode. While pilots claim to fly across the North Pole all the time, none of them have ever seen this opening because the fools that they are, they follow their compass and other instruments, which in turn are following the magnetic rim of this opening to the inner Earth. Instead of flying across the pole, which is centered in the middle of a really big hole, they're flying around it. However, should you ever come across this opening in your travels, if you're willing to brave the ice, hungry polar bears, below freezing temperatures, and adorable penguins. Congratulations, you found the entrance to Agartha. This makes no sense. This is one of those things where it's like, okay, I can understand why people could like be fooled by this in the past, because there's not a lot of like evidence to the contrary, even though there's no evidence for it either. But nowadays, it's like, what? Okay, so all the acad- academic institutions have bought off, and so is Google Maps, and all the other mapping companies, and every company that owns a satellite that can take pictures of the Earth. It's like, come on. It's just, nowadays, we be we should be bigger than this. We should be beyond this. Our big brains should be able to handle the fact that the Earth is not hollow. There seems to be some confusion about whether Agartha is a country or a city. Some stories claim that Agartha is the land found in the inner Earth, and Shambhala is, is its capital city. And remember that name, because we're going to get back to that later. Shambhala, while others claim that Agartha is the city. More contemporary theories refer to the Agartha network, claiming that this inner realm consists of a great many cities. Well, that would make sense, because it's going to be really big. If it's on the inside of the Earth, it's going to be the same size as the outside of the Earth. And that's a lot of space. The Earth's really big. Either way, it's in the center of the Earth, and it's not just inhabited. If all the stories are to be believed, it's downright crowded with thousands or even millions of inhabitants. Well, it wouldn't be very crowded then, because, what, like 8 billion people live on regular Earth? And it's not that... I mean, it's it, there's a lot of people, but it's not that crowded. There are places you go, it's like, there's nobody for miles. This is cool. The underground civilization is linked to all the continents with a network of tunnels, some natural and some created by the residents of Agartha. If you don't feel like plodding around the poles, there are other entrances to Agartha across the world. The Mammoth Cave in Kentucky and the Shasta Mountain in California, the base of the Great Pyramid of Giza, of course, Ma- Manaus and Mato Grosso in Brazil, 
Igaozu Falls on the border of Brazil and Argentina, Mount Epimeo in Italy, the Himalayas and Tibet beneath the border between China and Mongolia, which in my opinion is a bit vague, Rama in India, and King Solomon's Mines. Of course, you'd have to find the mines first, which means you'd solve two mysteries instead of one, so good on you! These entrances are a well-kept secret unless you have Google and they're guarded by initiates sworn to secrecy. Apparently, somebody didn't get a memo. The inhabitants of the inner earth are superior beings, far superior to us mere surface dwellers. They possess superior technology, are intellectually far ahead of us, and have reached a level of spiritual enlightenment we can only dream of. Of course, they can't share this with us, because they are morally obliged not to interfere with other cultures, sort of like the Prime Directive of Star Trek. And while Enterprise captains have a history of trampling all over the Prime Directive on the odd occasion, yeah, happens all the time. But what about the Prime Directive, Captain? We have to ignore the Prime Directive on this one, Lieutenant. <laughs> all the time. All the time. And sometimes they'll do it and they just won't even mention it. And it'll be like, it's not top of mind when you're on a spaceship exploring space about the prime directive of not interfering with alien cultures. And they're just like, let's interfere. I saw a great one. It was comparing Stargate to Star Trek. And it was like, Star Trek, don't interfere with alien cultures. Stargate, let's go fuck up some alien cultures and steal their shit. Uh, but these benevolent subterranean dwellers have more self-control than the Enterprise captain. They also keep they keep tabs on us, though, and if the need arises, they'll warn us to change our ways, as they've done many times in the past. And should we insist on annihilating ourselves, well, they're going to pick up the pieces. Of course, some believe that our benevolent subterranean guardians are, in fact, our rulers. We are ruled by the king of the world, who is in direct contact with the Dalai Lama in Tibet. The Dalai Lama has never admitted to this. Well, at least someone knows how to keep a secret. As for the citizens of this amazing land, there are plenty of origin stories. Some claim that they're giants. Another tale, known as the Shaver Mystery, tells of two races, the benevolent Teros and the evil Deros. That's short for detrimental robots, by the way. Brilliant. Yet others claim that the inner earth dwellers are the slaves that were left behind when the original inhabitants left the planet. In these tales, they like to torture humans and often kidnap surface women. However, most seem to agree that the wonderful people of Agatha are originally from Simon's favorite place, Atlantis. It's not my favorite place because it doesn't exist. And if it does exist, it's not some magical floating super island. It's just a place that was sort of lost to history. The people of Atlantis were so far ahead technologically that they ended up destroying themselves with a nuclear war. Whether they were fighting among themselves or fighting the Lemurians is still up for debate. However, some of these survivors, led by one Noah, and you might recognize that name from a story about a big boat, fled first to Brazil, at that point a colony of Atlantis, because, well, of course it was, where they built subterranean cities to escape all of the radioactive fallout and the flood caused by the melting of the polar ice caps. All right, this is getting elaborate. These cities were linked with each other and the outer world with a network of tunnels. Learning a valuable lesson, they created a peaceful and advanced civilization and decided not to bomb themselves into oblivion again. A wise decision in my opinion. From these survivors of Atlantis came the wise, technologically and morally advanced civilization that still lives in Agatha to this day. At the time they destroyed themselves, Atlanteans already had the technology to build flying machines, but that they still use to keep an eye on us up on the surface. We call them UFOs, and they don't come from outer space, they come from inside the Earth! No, they come from neither of these places, they come from like secret military bases. Come on. After the atomic bombs were dropped in 1945, the Atlanteans came to the surface once again to prevent another nuclear disaster destroying the planet. No disaster ever occurred, so, well, good job them. 
Of course, it's not just the survivors of Atlantis living in Agatha. Some speculate that the Mayans also moved into the inner world, which explains their sudden disappearance. I find this tale particularly interesting since there are many descendants of the Mayan people living in South America to this day. I suspect the author of this particular article was thinking of the Inca civilization, but their disappearance wasn't entirely sudden or unexplained either. I'm fairly sure the Spanish might have had something to do with that. Yes. Conquistador thing. Alternatively, the inner Earth is inhabited by descendants of Lemuria, a continent first proposed in 1864 by zoologist Philip Schlater. Why is a zoologist doing suggesting that there might have been another continent? You're a zoologist. Stick to what you know, mate. Come on. Which also mysteriously disappeared. An entire continent pff, disappeared. <laughs> that could never happen. What's it gonna do? Melt away. Some Native American and Inuit tribes claimed that their people originated from inside the earth, but I couldn't find any sources to confirm whether this is truly the case or whether this is just another instance of a tale twisted by hollow earth believers to fit their narrative. Either way, the center of our planet is apparently a melting pot of cultures. Where does the idea of a subterranean world come from. While it may have different names among different cultures, the idea of an underground city or civilization of some kind inhabited by people of superior intellect or with magical abilities is not really new. In many ancient tales, the world is considered to be the world of the Fae. King Hurler, an ancient Briton king, attended a dwarven wedding that lasted three days. When he returned to the surface, he found that three centuries had passed. His lands had been occupied and his people were driven out by the Saxon horde. There's also the tale of Sir Thomas Ersildown, a Scottish lord and poet who was enchanted by the Fairy Queen and became her lover for seven days. Upon his return, seven years had passed, and as a reward for staying with her, or perhaps as compensation, Thomas the Rhymer, as he was known, was given the gift of prophecy. One night, while dining with friends, two white deer came out of the forest. These stories from the past are just wild. It's like, it's like my kid telling a story, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. It's like, it's not making sense. You completely lost it, then this happens. It's okay. <laughs> You've completely lost the plot. It was the fairy queen summoning him back to the world of fairy. Sir Thomas heeded the call and was never seen again. But it's not just the ancient tales that tell of the fairy realm. In 1691, on May the 14th, Reverend Robert Kirk became another victim of fairies taken to their underground realm in punishment for collecting stories and secrets about the fae around his parishioners in Aberfoyle. In the words of my favorite author, Terry Pratchett, the Fae are wonderful, for they inspire wonder, and they are terrific for the terror they inspire. Moral of the tale, don't follow any of the Fae folk to their underworld kingdom. For ancient Greek philosophers and storytellers, the world under our feet was better known as Hades ruled by Persephone and Hades and inhabited by the shades of the dead. For Christians, however, what lies beneath our feet is not a land filled with wonder, riches, and fae, but rather it's purgatory and hell. Since heaven is above, hell must be below. According to one tale, in 445, St. Patrick discovered a cave on an island that was, in fact, the entrance to purgatory, and in the coming years, many pilgrims would visit the island in order to enter St. Patrick's purgatory and have their sins forgiven. One such pilgrim was an Irish knight, Sir Rowan, who in 1147, after serving in the Crusades in the Holy Land, entered St. Patrick's purgatory faced the demons and survived the punishments, most of them including flame in some form, to come out on the other side a new man because, you know, going through hell will do that. Stories of the past. So wild.
And then this happened. Of course, we know these are just tales. There are no fairies, not that we can see at any rate, and there are no ancient Greek gods, and hell is a crowded house party if you're an introvert and COVID isolation if you're an extrovert. It's not a fiery pit at the center of the planet. The Hollow Earth in Science. The concept of a hollow earth was first proposed by none other than Edmund Halley. Halley was a celebrated astronomer, and I think it's pronounced actually Halley. So that famous comet, Halley's Comet, which we've all been calling Halley's Comet, is actually pronounced Halley's Comet, right? And I, I'm pretty sure this is the dude who discovered Halley's Comet. Astronomer, meteorologist, mathematician, and physicist. While he made many contributions to science, he's best known for his identification of Halley's Comet and the accurate prediction that its orbit would take it past the Earth every 76 years. The comet's expected to swing by again in 2061 for those of you who would like to say hi. In 1683, Halley came to the conclusion that the Earth had four magnetic poles, two in the Southern Ocean and two in the North, specifically in the Bering Strait and Spitsbergen. Halley wasn't entirely right. Wrong. The Earth does have four poles, a magnetic north and south, and a geographic or true north and south. The true north and south are where the lines of longitude converge, whereas the magnetic north and south are determined by the Earth's magnetism. Unlike the true poles, the magnetic poles aren't static, and they change. So the geographic north poles are just arbitrary points that we essentially chose when we made up latitude and longitude, right? The other, the actual magnetic poles, they're in different locations. Then they move. It'd be really confusing if latitude and longitude moved every year. It'd be really difficult for maps and shit. Halley, being a scientist, tried to explain the existence of the poles and their gradual displacement. So, in 1687, using Newton's first Principia that placed the density of the moon to the density of the Earth as 9 to 5. Today, we actually know it's 1 to 81, so Newton was just a little bit off there. Halley came to the conclusion that the Earth must be hollow. He reasons that if the moon is denser than the Earth, but the Earth is considerably bigger than the moon, a hollow Earth would explain why the Earth didn't leave the moon behind in a dust cloud in their crazy hurtle through space. According to Halley, the Earth consisted of an outer sphere that was 500 miles or around 800 kilometers thick. This was followed by an air gap, the same distance between the outer sphere and the inner sphere. The inner sphere was held in place by gravity, otherwise it would collide with the outer sphere. However, the inner globe would need light, and this light was provided by the concave arches of the outer globe, shining like the sun. Okay, that's going to be really bright in there. Otherwise, it would collide without a space. At the time, science didn't know what the sun was, and I'm sure the idea that the sun was a ball of gas perpetually on fire was a bit preposterous. Of course, when I say on fire, I don't mean actual flames. It's actually a series of nuclear fusion reactions, but that's something you would have been admitted to Broadmoor for saying. Rather, Halley assumed that whatever substance the sun was made of was found inside our Earth as well and was providing light to the inner globe. The aurora borealis, or northern lights, were proof of his theory. The lights were caused by the inherently luminous matter inside the Earth escaping through fissures at the North Pole. I don't know if Halley knew about the Aurora Australis or Southern Lights, but I'm guessing the same reasoning would apply. Newton had already suggested that the Earth was a flattened sphere in 1687. Thus, Halley reasoned that the poles would be the thinnest, which is why you could only see the Aurora Aurobelis at the North Pole. While he suggested that this inner light might be habitable, he never claimed that this globe was inhabited by giants, dinosaurs, or aliens. Oh no, that would come later. Edmund Halley wasn't a crackpot practicing pseudoscientist in his basement. He was a serious scientist trying to explain a natural phenomena. Unfortunately, science hadn't caught up with his ideas yet. While he might have inadvertently given some serious credence to a theory that would blow up in popularity 200 years later and is still going strong, I doubt that was his intention. With the equipment and knowledge we have today, I'm sure Halley would have come up 
with a different theory. You know, no doubt because he's mega smart. He's Edmund Halley. He's discovered comets and shit. He's big brain. Agatha and Shambhala. A major influence on the story of Agatha, as we know it today, is Buddhism in Tibet. Now, I don't practice Buddhism, and I was limited to Western articles, all in English, for my information. Considering all the misinformation out there, finding the actual truth was quite difficult. So, if I got it wrong, I apologize. I also have to apologize. <laughs> I'll admit to something. Uh, uh, this From Agatha and Shambhala, the start of this little section of the video, I actually am recording this the next day because I was reading this. And it's got nothing, like, no, nothing to do with the writing. But yesterday night, I slept like five hours because I went to bed way too late. I went out with my friends for some cocktails. And my kids has been sleeping really well lately, like, until 7 a.m. And so I was like, I could stay out a bit later. Maybe get home at like 10, 11 o'clock. And yeah, then my kid decides to go up at five, which is awesome. And I was reading that last paragraph before that thing. And I, I, I read it, but I was like half asleep. And so I took a little nap and I came back the next day to, to, to finish this up. So if there's any like, <laughs> if someone's like, Simon, you read this like three minutes ago, it's because I actually read it yesterday. So that's that. I don't know why I'm telling you this. I could just probably carry on and no one would notice. According to Buddhism, Shambhala is a mythical kingdom, a place of peace, tranquility, and wisdom. Some claim that it's hidden somewhere in the Himalayas. However, the concept of Shambhala is not limited to Tibetan Buddhism. It's found in other cultures as well. Some others believe it could be found in the Sule Valley or even in valleys in southern Siberia. It's a pure land inhabited by enlightened people and ruled by the Kalki kings. When the 25th Kauki King comes to power, he will emerge from Shambhala to rid the world of greed, materialism, all the bad things, and start a golden age in human civilizations. Apparently someone's done the math and this will happen around 2424, so we have around 400 years to get our act together. This is one of those things. Was it 2012? 2014? 26? It was like, I feel like it ended in an even number. Maybe it was even earlier than that. Wasn't there some Mayan calendar thing and people were like, oh my dude, the Mayan calendar says that there's no more years after like 2012. Oh shit! The world's gonna end, and uh, obviously it didn't because it's all made up. And 24, 24 is gonna roll around, and we're all gonna be in like our future spaceships and shit. And we're not gonna care at all because hopefully by that point we've moved on from this nonsense. And look, it's all nonsense. I'm not singling out Buddhism. All of the, it's all, it's all like really, you can't all be right, can you? Since this kingdom is associated with a religious practice, it can be interpreted in multiple ways. The Kalaktra Tantra, one of the many Buddhist teachings as I understand it, whenever I think of Tantra, I just think of like, isn't, isn't there something sexual with that? Isn't there like tantric sex? Isn't that what Sting does? And I'm sure it's like, it means like lesson or something. So it's got something to do with like sex lessons and Sting or something. I'm probably being really offensive to Buddhism right now, aren't I? Well, let's just carry on. And I lost my train of thought. Apparently I didn't sleep enough. I slept awesome last night and I'm really enjoying myself a lot more today. Yesterday was a bit of a bit, bit hard. Oh, poor, it's poor Simon. Boo hoo. You just have to go and read shit. Yeah, but whenever I read Tantra, or Tantra, Tantra, Tantric, Tantra, I'm here, it just always reminds me of Sting and his tantricness. <laughs> People know this story right about Sting and his tantric sex. The outer refers to Shambhala as an actual place that you can only reach if you have good enough karma. The inner and alternative meanings have more to do with spiritual and meditative practices. You'll notice that I haven't said anything about Agatha. Many of the hollow earth believers claim that Shambhala is the capital city of Agatha, the inner kingdom, and that they were told this by practicing Buddhist lamas and such. Lamas. See, when I read that, I always think of that weird animal that's sort of halfway between a goat and a camel. 
However, I couldn't find anything in my research on Buddhism that connects Agatha and Shambhala. All the descriptions of Shambhala I found are of a land or, pure, or a kingdom, a realm entirely in its own, not a city or part of a bigger realm. So how did this Buddhist kingdom of peace and tranquility become the capital city of an inner world and a launchpad for UFOs? The first contact with Tibet the Europeans was 1624. However, it was always a mysterious place, and for most of the 1800s, Tibet was closed to Europeans. In fact, Tibet has a habit of banning foreigners within their borders fairly often, even before COVID. So, as is human nature a solid combination of misinformation and very creative and liberal interpretations of foreign religious concepts with a healthy dose of cherry-picked science to call science? <laughs> Uh, what we explained earlier about gravity working two ways, they'd be like, yes, science! It's like, no, no, made up nonsense. These took hold in people's imaginations, creating a narrative of a mysterious Eastern religion hiding the entrance to a highly advanced yet peaceful civilization safely tucked away inside the planet. Oh, what nonsense. If this turns out to be real, I will eat this iPad. I previously said there was something. Was it on Decoding the Unknown or was it my other podcast, Casual Criminalist, where there was something and I was like, that will never happen. And if it does, I'm on video right now saying I will eat the scripts. And that was when I had paper scripts before I cared about the environment and also couldn't be bothered to print them all out. But if this turns out to be real, I'll eat this iPad. I'll eat this entire thing. The search is on. There are so many accounts of people who either visited Agatha themselves or spoke to people who visited Agatha, and it's impossible to cover all of them and still hang on to any shred of sanity. So, I'm only going to look at a few of the big names in the Hollow Earth circles. Let's start with one of the first proponents of the Hollow Earth theory as we know it today, retired Captain John Symes. On the 10th of April, 1818. A rather peculiar message arrived in the post boxes of members of Congress, heads of universities, and leading scientists at the time. To the whole world! I declare that the Earth is hollow and habitable in the interior. It contains several solid concentric spheres placed one inside the other and is open to the pole at an angle of from 12 to 16 degrees. Mate, your English also needs some work, son. I undertake to prove the truth of what I am asserting and am ready to explore the interior of the Earth if the world agrees to help me in my undertaking. Signed, John Cleve Symes, Captain Retired, Ohio Infantry. Dude, no one's listening to you. You're crazy. Why are you sending this letter? A retired captain who had served with distinction in the War of 1812 and then retired to run a trading post in St. Louis with his family. Symes, surprisingly, not a trained scientist. What? But he was curious, observant, enthusiastic about learning, and as the proprietor of a trading post, he had some free time. When business started drying up, he moved to Cincinnati and threw himself into his true passion, spreading word of the hollow earth and raising money for an expedition to Antarctica to find this inner earth and expand the United States, not just vertically, but horizontally as well. This guy is like, manifest destiny to the center of the earth! Wow. Wow, he's not just morally wrong, he's also scientifically wrong. His lectures drew some crowds, but he never got enough donations to actually go on his voyage to the icy poles and prove his theory. Eventually, all the traveling and lecturing took its toll on his health. However, he inspired a number of followers, among them was Jeremiah Reynolds. Initially, the two men traveled together, giving lectures, but soon they had a falling out. While Reynolds was as much of a believer in the Hollow Earth as Symes, Reynolds was more interested in a voyage to Antarctica for scientific advancement rather than just finding 
finding the entrance to hollow earth well to be fair if he believes in the hollow earth finding the entrance to the hollow earth is going to be some pretty major scientific advancement to be honest it's probably going to be more interesting if you really if he really believes this he'd be like no we want to go there and study the ice or penguins the other dude be like bro but there could be an entrance to the inside of the earth and a bit now more interesting than penguins but if they both believe in it surely he'd see that as scientific advancement that doesn't make any sense slimes however slimes however couldn't phantom any other reason to go to the pole to find this entrance i know it's, it's supposed to be fathom but it says phantom <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't phantom any other reason i like that the two men parted ways and became rivals once having lectures on the same day in manhattan while Symes could never convince investors to back his expedition reynolds being a better speaker and focusing on the scientific value of an expedition rather than a hollow earth theory where it was pseudoscience at best had a bit more luck yeah no doubt because it's like hey 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 uh governmental body i want to go to the north pole to study penguins and consider drilling some ice samples and seeing if there's anything interesting up there or if it's just a big wasteland that no one should ever go to they'll be like okay it sounds boring but scientific another guy comes along it's like hey 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 governmental body the earth is hollow and i'm going to find the entrance they'll be like who let this guy in how did you get past reception <laughs> where's your badge sadly the first expedition backed by private investors was a total failure the expedition was supposed to bring back seal furs to repay the investors but there were few seals and the ships were ill-equipped to deal with the ice many years later between 1838 and 1842 a second expedition this time backed by the government with the sole focus of being scientific exploration was sent but due to conflict with people in powerful positions reynolds was left behind however this was not the first proper expedition reynolds had had several interviews with captains of whaling and sealing vessels and learned that exploration of the region had been ongoing for years of course the captains weren't all that keen on sharing their research because no one wanted to give away their secret locations for finding seals and whales however there was one story that stood out captain adam seaborn obviously a pseudonym <laughs> yes yeah, see why well, it could be why does it have to does it have to be a pseudonym like it's a real adam seaborn doesn't matter anyway it fallen on hard times and in 1820 he wrote and published a book claiming that not only had he found the entrance to the inner earth that but he had lived among the inhabitants for months oh maybe he used a pseudonym because if he used his real name people would be like hey 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 aren't he the crazy dude who writes about the aliens inside the earth well they're not really aliens i guess what does he call them inhabitants and they'll be like hey, that'll be embarrassing inspired by the theory of john signs captain seaborn outfitted a vessel named the explorer and he set off for the south pole with a crew of 50 ostensibly to hunt seals for profits but his real intention was to find the entrance to the inner earth he felt that symes was correct when he stated that seals and whales swam from the inner to the outer earth which is why they were much more numerous the closer you came to the entrances to the poles or they're more numerous for the same reason like if you're in the uk not going to be that many tigers if you go over to india going to be more tigers because when you get closer to something's natural environment there are more of them you didn't think about that one did you seaborn did you apparently the fact that this was just the natural habitat of seals didn't occur to anyone exactly after many months of sailing so stupid after many months of sailing and some threats of mutiny the explorer came upon a continent teeming with seals and named it seaborn lands 
That didn't stick. Today, it's known as Antarctica. Leaving some of his men behind to set up a station and get down to the business of killing as many seals as they could find, the past was the worst, everybody, the explorer continued on. The days became shorter, and the compass became useless. The needle just kept spinning randomly. This was because the ship was, in fact, sailing downwards, now into the inner earth. They had actually found the entrance. Well, you'd know you haven't, because you'd be like, well, sky's still above us, sea is still below us. There's been no point where suddenly the ship is at a 90-degree angle compared to the rest of the sea in some sort of weird crossover land. You would notice that. You'd be like, why is the sky? Oh my lord, the sky is at a 90 degree. It'd be like some Inception shit, you know, where they fold over the city. You'd be like, uh-oh, it's not supposed to be like this. Eventually, they spotted land and finally came upon civilization. Seaborn named it Simsimesonia, in honor of the man whose theories had led him there. He described living among the Simsonians, a peace-loving and advanced people. They didn't fight wars. They lived humbly and there was no ambition and desire for wealth and power <laughs> what else they spend their time doing what are you supposed to do other than gather wealth and power with life where seaborn's story differs from many others is that the inhabitants of simesonia instead of keeping an eye on mankind became disgusted about what they learned of the outer earth from seaborn much to his shame finally realizing the danger the outside posed seaborn and his men were banished from simesonia and seaborn's dream of opening trade with simesonia was dashed he returned to his ship and the explorer sailed back to the station in antarctica to collect the crew and fur the ship continued on its way trading the furs making the captain a good fortune of course he soon lost his fortune and sitting in debtor's prison with nothing much to do he wrote a book about his most marvelous travels hoping for some fame and fortune and it never came. Debtor's prison. I always whenever I think of that, I'm like, man, that is a solid example of the past as It's like you get into debt, and it's not like they want to collect the debt; they'll just put you in jail because you didn't, because you you can't pay off your credit card. <laughs> Fucking hell. The true author of the book has never come forward. Some claim it was Symes himself who wrote the book, but considering that his middle name is misspelled a few times, that seems unlikely. Or he did it to throw through the guy, throw people off. A few authors have been proposed, but it's generally agreed that Nathaniel Ames, an American author, of, an American author of nautical fiction, is the most likely suspect, and the book is considered satirical travel fiction, much like Gulliver's Travels. Others insist that the book is a true account of an actual journey. Unfortunately, since Captain Adam Seaborn took his true identity to his grave, I suppose we'll never know. However, I think Simon will agree with me that uh, agree with me on this one it's fiction of course it's bloody fiction i do also i think this is one of those things that we could potentially solve in the future with smart computers right because computers are really good at doing that like thing where they analyze tons of stuff so if you've put in and i know google does this with like google books if you've put in every book ever written by every author like in libraries and whatever throughout history and then at some point there's going to be computers that are good enough to analyze all that hex right and spot patterns and mistakes then you could plug in a book that exists and be like yo who wrote this using who's making the same mistakes using the same structure doing this and all of that and it'll be like it's a 90 percent chance that was written by this dude right that's not in the crazy distant future i think we'll find out eventually who wrote this not all explorations of Agatha happened in the flesh, though. Like I mentioned before, a liberal and often wrong interpretation of Eastern mysticism led to a number of visits happening telepathically. Oh my god, how exciting, because that's real. One such believer was Marquis Joseph Alexandre Saint-Yervé de Alvedra, who, who contacted Agatha and its inhabitants around 1885. Saint-Yervé de Alvedra was a philosopher proposing an idea of synarchy as a form of government. What the fuck is synarchy? However, an important part of his system 
I'm going to look up Sineke, so I'm obviously not going to get an explanation. Is this something I should know? Joint rule or governance by two governance or by two or more individuals or parties? Rome had a crack at that, didn't they? With the, like the triumvirate? Those emperors ruling at the same time, something like that. It's been done before. However, an important part of his system would include esoteric societies comprised of oracles guiding and protecting governments from behind the scenes. Let's not do that. That just sounds like when the church gets too much power. Because, or, or like, great example, the king. People in the past, in like, I don't know how it is in other countries, but in the UK, it'd be like the king is the word of God. Like the God speaks through the king's mouth. So whatever the king says is like the word of God, which honestly is fucking mental, isn't it? And that's like having these oracles and people guiding from behind the scenes is just asking for trouble because these people are frauds, obviously, or crazy. And because they are, don't argue with me on that one. And giving them too much power to control stuff is obviously a bad move because they're frauds. Being interested in the occult, San Yves, Saint Yves is how it's said. What's that one? Yves Saint Laurent? Yves Saint. Saint Yves. Saint Yves. I don't know. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I decided to study Sanskrit and engaged a tutor hard Digi Sharif. Hardigi. I'm definitely pronouncing that wrong. Or Hardjij. Styling himself as Guru Pandit of the Great Agathan School. Shari told Sanyavar about all about Agatha, a subterranean kingdom located beneath the Himalayas and governed by sages. Eventually, master and student had a falling out, and after an incident involving a knife, Sharif was shown the door, but Sayyavir was now a firm believer in Agatha, and apparently the feeling was mutual, for he began receiving telepathic messages from the sages, and he eventually travelled to Agatha through, the, through astral projection. And of course, he wrote a book about it. Let's spend some money! The story is the same as the others. Agatha was a utopia, a futuristic society with exotic architecture, and the people were advanced, vegetarian, long-lived, and very happy. This utopia was ruled by three councils and overseen by a council of sages, essentially the same system of Sineke that Saint-Yev, Saint-Yev, oh, for God's sake, the French dude, had been proposing for years. And lo and behold, it worked amazing. The sages kept an eye on the world above as well as occasionally sending emissaries to gently nudge mankind in the right direction. They had access to an extensive library of ancient wisdom, most of it from Atlantis. Some sources claim that Sayev was as mad as a hatter. Simon also claims this. This guy's off his fucking rocker. Either that or he's a grifter. While others claim that he was a serious philosopher whose writings and journey should be considered fairly. Yeah, 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 We've I've given it fair consideration, but it's obviously bunk. 
In my opinion, he took advantage of the Hollow Earth craze sweeping Europe to promote his philosophies on government. Another name that comes up quite a bit is Madame Helena Blavatsky. However, much like Admiral Byrd that we'll get to later, I'm not sure how much of what is ascribed to Blavatsky is true. Born in Russia in 1831, she was a medium and founder of the Theosophical Society. She held seances, introduced the Western world to Eastern religions and mysticism, and is considered by some to be the mother of the New Age movement. She claimed to have gotten much of her information firsthand during her travels through India and Tibet, which was closed to foreigners at the time. A woman traveling the world alone in the 1850s is a bit unlikely, considering how restricted women's movements were at the time, so anything she had to say should probably be taken with a pinch of salt. Everything in this bloody episode should be taken with a pinch of salt. One story goes that while she was traveling to South America in 1849 and 1850, she learned all about the subterranean tunnels in Peru and Bolivia, leading to secret underground civilizations. There were many tales of explorers discovering lost and hidden cities in the jungles of South America. Most of them never returned, and it was accepted by many that they had found the entrances to Agatha and decided not to return. No, no, no. They died in the jungle of diseases like malaria and typhus and getting killed by tribes who didn't like them and maybe ate them. <laughs> oh, it's such nonsense. I'm thinking they probably died of diseases and got eaten by wild animals. Yes, me too. Blavatsky, like many others, believed the entrance to the cave system and the tunnels that led to the underground world were situated in or near Cuzco in Peru. She also claimed to have a map of these tunnels given to her by an elderly gentleman in Peru. However, she never used the map to find the inner world because such an expedition would require the cooperation of various governments and a huge expedition party to deal with all the dangers of the jungle. Like most successful charlatans, she was practical. The reason I'm a little doubtful about Blavatsky's role in the Hollow Earth conspiracy is that when I did my own research on Blavatsky, I came across a fascinating historical figure. She was a charlatan, no doubt, but she was the founder of a society, smoked a pound of tobacco a day. Fucking hell! A pound? Hey Siri, how much is a pound in grams? Grams. Grams! So, uh, you guys can't hear Siri, but I'm like, you heard what I said to it. And then it's like, what would you like to convert that to? I'm like, grams, bitch. What the fuck? Hey, Siri, what's one pound in grams? That's half a kilogram of tobacco a day. That's fucking mental. That's like 10 big packages of that uh, amber leaf. What's it called? What's that green tobacco that people smoke in the UK? Rolling tobacco. That's a lot of tobacco. That's absolutely mental. Your lungs must be a disaster, Blavatsky. She was a very successful grifter at a time when scamming was mostly a man's business. While she definitely deserves a biographics video, I couldn't find any references to her to her search for a Garth outside of the Hollow Earth conspiracy books and websites. As for South America, I've been there, and so I would encourage anyone interested to visit. Peru is a beautiful country, and the people are very friendly. They don't need entrances to the Hollow Earth and lost cities to be amazing. I've never been to South America. I'd like to go. I've always, like... It's definitely on my list of places, but it's quite a hassle to get to because it's really far and it's like you've got to make connections in places from Europe. And now that I have kids and shit, it's going to be a really long time before I go there because flying with kids, young kids, is not so fun. I took a three-hour flight with my kids recently. It was fine. It, was, it wasn't the best. Fortunately, there were lots of other kids on the flight, so it wasn't, and, and my kids are like three and one, so it wasn't that bad, but like 15 hours. 16 hours? No. 
No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 not yet. They need to get a little bit older. The Nazis get involved. Oh, what would a good conspiracy be without the guys from Germany that demonetize a video with the mere mention of them? If that's the case, Simon, I apologize. No, it's generally good. We'll probably be fine. YouTube's quite smart. Now, there are so many different conspiracy theories concerning the Nazis and the Hollow Earth that it's impossible to cover them all. Some start well before World War II in 1938 with the Bavarian crash, Germany's version of Roswell, complete with Aryan-looking aliens. I have never heard of this. Bavarian crash, Germany's version of Roswell is a fantastic title for a YouTube video. That would be very clickable. And it ends with a whole bunch of scientists and engineers going missing at the end of the war. Obviously, they fled Germany for South America and the secret Nazi base in Antarctica. However, I honestly think the Third Reich has gotten more than enough airtime, so I'm going to keep this brief. It's fairly common knowledge that Hitler was obsessed with the occult and the Aryan race. Many a documentary and movie have been made based on Hitler's search for artifacts of power. Of course, if Indiana Jones is to be believed, the Ark of the Covenant was found and when opened, melted all the Nazis. You'd think that they would have learned their lesson after that. But, oh no, the search continued. There are two very contradicting tales regarding Hitler and the search for the Inner Earth. On the one hand, sources claim that he was searching for the entrances to the Inner Earth, while others claim that he believed, We're the ones inside the planet! Oh my! I suppose he could have believed both. He was certainly unstable enough. He was lots of drugs, was old Hitler. So the one tale goes that Hitler believed we're the ones inside the Earth. The sun is in the center of the planet, and we live on the concave slope. So basically, we're all living on the inner side of the Earth's crust, like ants in a bowl. So, in order to use the concave shape of the Earth to his advantage, a team of scientists were sent to Rügen in April of 1942. They were ordered to put up radar equipment and aim it at a sharp angle up into the sky. I just don't believe this ever happens. I mean, I know Hitler is a little bit batty and all that shit, and he believes in the occult and everything, but there are lots of people who believe in the occult. I think it's all a bit silly, as you guys well know. But believing that the inner earth is hollow is like, that is a whole other level of insane. That's like flat earth insane. And they're just, there's a good number, but there's just not that many statistically. I think it's very statistically unlikely that Hitler, as crazy as he was, I don't really think he believed the Earth was hollow. Hitler's reasoning was that the rays would bounce off the other side of the concave Earth or the bowl, revealing the positions of the Allied fleets. I'm guessing he didn't have a strong science background. No, he did not. The second tale edges on the... He had an art background, and it wasn't very good. The second tale edges on the border of complete madness, in my opinion, and was based solely on a piece of fiction. A secret society named the Luminous Lodge of the Vril Society was established sometime before the war and became closely associated with the Nazi party. It was based on a book, The Coming Race, by Edward Bulwer-Lytton, published in 1871. Apparently, physical copies of this book are fairly rare, but since it's in the public domain, there are plenty of free copies online. The book tells the story of a young American who travels to the inner world. To reach it, he must descend deep into the earth. Earth. He undertakes the journey with a friend and engineer, but something goes wrong and his friend falls to his death, leaving the young explorer alone with no means of returning to the surface. Luckily, he's found by the benevolent Vrilya, an advanced society living inside our planet. So, this is obviously fiction. It was written as fiction. It's talked about as fiction, but somehow people cotton on to this as being like something they should believe this just seems crazy as with most tales he describes the amazing architecture the wise and benevolent people the advanced technology including flying machines that look and operate like wings all powered by an energy source called real power 
Eventually, our hero returns home with the help of one of the Virilia, who flies him to the surface. Bol Willitton himself was a part of several secret societies, but he always maintained that the book was fiction and nothing more. Obviously. God damn, people. Come on. Why are you up to this? Why? <laughs> it's like, you were saying this book's fiction and people are like bro bro your book ain't fiction that book's real it's like i wrote it it's fake why do people what why why do we have to be like this however hitler firmly believed that the book was fact the brill society believed that the inner earth was inhabited by the lords of the universe and that man needed to become more godlike in order to make an alliance with these lords they were also very keen to get their hands on that amazing power source Vril. According to some sources, Hitler and his Reich poured thousands into finding the entrance to the inner earth. Scientists and geographers were tasked with mapping abandoned mines and caves in search of this magical city. Some claim they never found anything, but others state that not only did the Nazis find the entrance, at the end of the war Hitler and some of his high-ranking officials escaped to this inner world when they realized the war was lost. Once again, all this information came from pro-hollow earth sources, so I have no idea whether any of it's true. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. It's not true. We all know it's not true. At the very least, there certainly seems to have been a real society, and considering Hitler's obsession with the occult, I wouldn't be surprised if it's true. Well, they definitely didn't go into the Earth, and I don't think, I really don't think, like, as much as I want to shit all over Hitler, it's that I don't think he believed this, because this is truly some off-the-wall shit that statistically it's just really unlikely he believed. And that's that. Sorry. Also, can you imagine Hitler showing up in the inner worlds? He'd be like, hey guys, hey, 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 what's that? We, we weren't running for anything. It's, it's all good. We weren't in a bunker. They'd be like, oh, welcome to, what was it called? Welcome to the real society. Uh, why, how, how did you guys find us? What are you doing down here? It's like, well, we definitely weren't running away after just being a massive genocide. That's for sure. We're godlike and Aryan and wonderful. We're the best of society. Definitely no genocide was going on. There was no genocide. Why do you keep bringing up genocide? <laughs> The Secret Diary of Admiral Byrd. No video on the search for Agatha would be complete without Admiral Byrd, Operation Hydrump, and the Admiral's Secret Diary. Keep in mind that the Secret Diary of Admiral Byrd and the Lost Diary of Admiral Byrd though it has apparently been found, so I suppose it's no longer lost, are two different books entirely. The Lost Diary was found among some of the Admiral's papers, and suggests that Admiral Byrd was not the first pilot to cross the North Pole, whereas the Secret Diary was published after the Admiral's death, and details his visit to Agatha. But, I'm getting ahead of myself, let's rewind a little bit. Who was Admiral Byrd? Yes, good question. I was a little bit like, did I miss something? <laughs> I feel like we mentioned him really early on, didn't we? Or for me, that would be yesterday. Richard E. Byrd was a naval officer and aviation pioneer who left his mark on history. On May 9th, 1926, Byrd, as navigator, and his pilot, Floyd Bennett, claimed the honor of being the first people to fly across the North Pole. However, they may have turned back around 150 miles or 250 kilometers short of the North Pole due to concern about an oil leak, so it is possible that this honor actually belongs to Roald and Munson and his crew. Flying across the North Pole was not his only claim to fame. Bird also led five missions to Antarctica, among them the famous Operation High Jump. I have to say, I'm like, <laughs> this episode's been so full of fiction so far that I've got myself a little muddled. But this is real history. What we're talking about now actually happens. Fairly sure I might have even heard of this dude before we made this video. Yeah, this is real. During World War II, Byrd served on the staff of the Chief of Naval Operations. After the war, from 1946 to 1947, he was placed in charge of Operation High Jump. It was the largest expedition sent to Antarctica at the time, and it consisted of 4,700 men, 13 ships, 
among them an aircraft carrier and 25 planes. That's a massive expedition. This was Byrd's third expedition to Antarctica, so he knew what to expect. The expedition mapped and photographed 537,000 square miles, that's 860,000 square kilometers, and returned with 49,000 photos, covering 60% of Antarctica. As scientific endeavors went, it was quite successful. Now, being a military man, Byrd saw the potential in Antarctica, and he feared a potential attack from the Russians via the Poles. Many people have used his speech in which he mentions fear of attack from the polar region as proof that he visited an inner Earth and feared their superior technology. Or he just feared that the Russians could cross the Poles to attack. Not literally, I mean, they'd be attacking from the polar region, but they would also have to travel to the polar region first. Obviously. Why did we have to misinterpret? He's like, he's talking about the alien people in the Earth. No, he's not. Why would you, why would you jump to that conclusion? Come on. Since this secret diary about his visit to Agartha was only published after his death, I have some doubts about its authenticity, but you decide for yourself. The diary is dated February the 2nd, 1947, and it begins with a flight log at 600 hours for the flight north. Initially, it appears to be a regular flight log. Bird and his radio man make contact with base camp. There was a slight oil leak in the starboard engine, and they experience some turbulence. At 09-1000 hours, things get interesting. Both the magnetic and gyro compasses start to wobble, military terminology, I'm sure, and the controls are a bit sluggish. From this point onwards, things go from interesting to, well, fantastical. First, they start seeing mountains where there shouldn't be any mountains. Soon after that, they spot a green valley with a small river and no sign of ice. The light looks different, and they can't see the sun anymore. Next, they spot a mammoth-like animal in the vegetation below, and their external temperature indicator measures 74 degrees Fahrenheit, which is around 24 degrees Celsius, in the South Pole. They want to report this, but they find the radio isn't functioning. By now, I would assume that I'm suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning and turn the plane around, but apparently our intrepid explorers forged ahead and saw, in the distance, a city. I'll be like, let's get down to a lower altitude immediately and open the fucking windows because something ain't right mayday mayday at this point they lose control of the plane and they find themselves flanked by unknown aircraft marked with a symbol similar to a swash sticker they informed that their craft is under the unknown pilot's control but they'll land safely which they do here the log ends and the rest of the diary is from memory it tells of a visit to a wondrous city with cordial hosts bird is summoned to meet the master of Ariani, that's what they call the inner world, who gives them a message to take back home. The people of Ariani don't interfere with the surface world, but the explosion of nuclear bombs drew their attention, and they're concerned about man tampering with forces that he clearly doesn't understand. Um, wait a minute. <laughs> of course we understand it. How do you think nuclear power came to be? It'd be like, whoa, look at this big explosion we made. How did we do that? And then some scientists are, I can tell you exactly how we did that. Um, because we did it, didn't we? <laughs> the Master, as their leader is called, warns that there is another war coming, one that will leave human civilization in ruin should mankind continue down its nuclear path. The Earth will enter another dark age, but humankind should survive, and when they start looking for the treasures of their lost world, these treasures and knowledge will be in the safekeeping of the people of Ariani, who will come forth and help guide mankind into a new age. After this meeting, Bird and his radio man are escorted back to their plane and allowed to return to the surface world. However, Admiral Bird would never deliver this message, and he was ordered to stay silent, and being a military man, he did just that. However, when he realized that death was creeping up on him, he decided to finally reveal the truth for all to hear. Now, this story 
is a favorite of hollow earth believers it comes up again and again however there's one big problem <laughs> there is is there <laughs> oh what could that be there's no proof that admiral bird ever wrote any of this the only other person in the plane with him is radio man howie to my knowledge never came forward with any tales of mysterious inner world of the 4700 men that went with bird to antarctica no one ever confirmed the story either in the log itself it states that the admiral made a report to base camp when he spotted the mammoth and the radio only stopped functioning 25 minutes later surely reports of an animal thought to be extinct would be an extraordinary scientific discovery the only strange thing about this story is the fact that admiral bird's son who apparently gave this diary to whoever published it died in suspicious circumstances he was traveling to a ceremony to honor his father but never arrived and was later found deceased possibly due to dehydration in a warehouse in baltimore that is unfortunate and has absolutely nothing to do with this hollow earth conspiracy theorists believe that bird's son was going to reveal more information about his father's visit to the inner world but he was murdered to keep him quiet what because his entire description of it was not revealing enough there was some other thing that he's like well we can't mention that that would make us look crazy while his death was certainly odd it's never been ruled murder this is of course a further cover-up of course it is <clears throat> So, this inner Earth is inhabited by singing giants, the Tiros, the Deiros, descendants from Atlantis, and Lemuria, Mayans, Simazonians, wise men, Vrilia, Nazis, mammoths, dinosaurs, Vikings, the lost tribes of Israel, and, and last but not least, for those still looking for Amelia Earhart, you can give it up. Before her plane crash, she was saved by the Agathans, who beamed the plane and its crew into Agatha which is why she's never been found. <laughs> so reasonable. She didn't just crash into that giant pile of nothingness that is the sea and was never found that's not likelier at all is it finally i've been waiting for a resolution to that mystery for like two decades modern day believers now you probably noticed by now that all of the tales i've shared relate from the 1800s and early 1900s there's a good reason for that hollow earth believers today base their belief of this theory on these old sources i've come across some truly imaginative theories that hurt my brain and make me doubt the future of mankind as a whole but the roots of the theories can always be traced back to halley despite the theory being more than 300 years old symes who wasn't a scientist sa ypres who was either mad as a hatter or really knew how to read a room blavatsky a known charlatan poor admiral bird who's no longer around to defend himself all the crazy things the nazis believed and finally teachings from buddhism and tibet that were conveniently misinterpreted however not only are there still plenty of believers the movement is actually growing one such telepathic communicator diane robbins told a new york post article that there are 100 subterranean cities known as the agatha network oh diane <laughs> you grifty grift grift allegedly the inhabitants are human like us but because they've lived their lives in peaceful isolation they've gained immortality that makes sense diane <laughs> you big brain and here i was looking at the viability of cryonics another modern day believer of the hollow earth theory is rodney clough author of the world top secret our earth is hollow published in 2014 published someone published this surely self-published come on come on no one's like <laughs> who tried to organize an expedition to the hollow earth in 2007 the planned expedition would depart from russia with an icebreaker ship and head for the opening in the north pole at the time the expedition would have cost twenty thousand dollars per person needless to say it never got off the ground but clough is still a firm believer and claims more and more people are coming to terms with the idea that the earth is hollow in 2002 a man claiming to be a united states air force colonel also came forward stating that he visited the inner earth in 1982 through tunnels 
on Area 51. So I guess you can add that to the list of entrances, of course. Of course. Oh my god. Of course, if you're a bit skeptical about this whole business, I know I sure am. What about just asking someone who's from Agatha? Sharula Aurora Dax is an ambassador from Inner Earth who was born in Telos in 1725 and arrived at the city of Mount Shasta in California in the 1980s. She was kind enough to give an interview that covered life in Telos in great detail, but good luck finding her because she went into seclusion in 1993. I'll be honest, I only read excerpts of the interview because by this point I was beginning to doubt the viability of humankind as a species, so let's move on to something a little bit more real. Proof of a hollow earth. Honestly, it doesn't sound a lot more real, does it? If we're honest. Some dedicated Agatha theorists haven't given up on science completely and refer to how planets are formed as their arguments in favor of an inner Earth. Many people agree that a form of energy is needed for any advanced society to develop. For our surface dwellers, that would be the Sun. However, there isn't a star inside a planet's core. Or is there? To understand this theory, we first need to consider how a star and planets are formed. Basically, a star is born when a cloud of dust and gas collapses under its own gravitational attraction. This begins to heat up. However, not all the dust in the cloud becomes the star. The remaining dust floating around in space containing various elements like carbon and iron. These particles start colliding, sometimes they stick together, and eventually they form into physical bodies like planets, dwarf planets, meteors, and natural satellites. The universe is incredible. I love all this shit. It's wild. It's so cool. Unlike some bullshit theory about the hollow earth. Let's see where this goes. According to Marshall Gardner, an astronomer and hollow earth believer, some photos of distant planets and nebulas show flattened tops and possibly glowing openings, suggesting an interior source of energy like a small sun inside the planet. However, while the majority of my knowledge regarding space is from Star Trek, legend, I couldn't find anything to suggest that a star can form inside a planet. But there is a, there is a very hot core inside our planet, but perhaps it's possible for a planet to form around a different source of energy. Of course, I'm not sure how that would prove the planet is hollow. Our own planet's core would be a great source of energy, but that doesn't make the planet hollow. Then there are the mammoths and mastodons, big woolly elephants that lived during the last ice age that went extinct about 10,000 years ago. While the average Joe won't come across mammoth remains on a daily basis compared to dinosaur fossils, they're plentiful, and finding even well-preserved remains isn't that uncommon if you're in that line of work. Of course, this is more proof that the hollow earth is real. How's that again? Mammoths are still alive and well inside the earth. However, if they wander too far north or fall into crevasses or die in some other way, they're carried by rivers from Agatha to the surface. This also explains why the remains are so well-preserved. You mean other than them being frozen in the very real ice? Have you looked inside your freezer? Put a steak in there and tell me what happens to it. In 2014, in Siberia, mammoth remains were found with food still in the stomach. The reason for this is simple. The mammoth didn't die 10,000 years ago. It died the other day and got washed to the surface. Call me crazy, but I'm going to go with the scientists on this one and believe them when they say that mammoths are extinct. Apparently, there are also dinosaurs in the inner earth, but we're not going to even go there. <laughs> You sheep. Come on, this is all obviously real. You're like, big science has got your eyes covered. Of course, in order to keep this amazing secret, well, a secret, civilians aren't allowed to visit the polar regions in case they spot this opening and tell everybody. Google images are being manipulated by the government and commercial airlines aren't allowed to fly across the poles. It's all entirely false. If you really want to explore either the Arctic or Antarctica as a civilian, you're entirely free to do so. Since Antarctica is a continent that doesn't belong to any specific nation, you don't need a visa. All you need is a passport. 
However, before you book a trip, there are some conditions. Antarctica is a very fragile and mostly untouched ecological system, and we'd like to keep it that way. So travel operators going to Antarctica need permits, and you'll need permission to go to some places. Also, unless you're a penguin, Antarctica might be one of the most, if not the most, inhospitable places on the planet. You're not just going to be uncomfortable. If you don't take the necessary precautions, you will die. On top of all that, it's really expensive. Flying over the poles is also allowed, but it can interfere with instruments and requires extra safety gear for all passengers on board, on board in case of an emergency. This is fine for a military jet carrying only the pilot, but for a commercial airline carrying 400 passengers, this just isn't feasible. Other than looking for exclusive openings to prove government conspiracies, there's also no reason to fly over the polar regions. It doesn't significantly alter flight times, and with no big airports and limited infrastructure, should an emergency landing be necessary, there won't be help once the plane manages to land, which might be difficult due to extreme weather. Military aircraft do operate in the polar regions. The reason for this is easy. Both Russia and the US have considered launching attacks from the polar regions, so they're both keeping an eye to make sure that the other one doesn't do anything there first. And finally, all those Google images being manipulated by the government, I'm sorry, that's also false. It's a simple question of resources and time. A popular image proving the existence of these entrances shows a dark section right at the North Pole where the opening would be. However, the satellites that take the images don't take all of them instantly. The satellite moves and the photos were taken over 24-hour periods and then combined to give a picture of the North Pole and a lot can happen in 24 hours. As one scientist also stated, taking aerial surveillance photos and satellite images costs money. Therefore, scientists spend their precious resources taking photos of areas of interest and and other things rather than a lot of ice. There's nothing interesting about the poles that can be seen from the air. The poles get super interesting when you take core samples of the ice, but there's not much satellite images can tell scientists and they, that they don't already know or can't find out by other means. No one is prevented from taking photos of the North and South Pole, but they simply have very few reasons to do so. Finally, Many of the stories about Agatha are in the form of a found manuscript. The story of Olaf Janssen that we started with is a good example, but it wasn't the only one. There are plenty. Another good example of a found manuscript is a tale told to Llewellyn Drury, who was supposed to publish the entire story, but ended up not doing it, and finally entrusting the whole manuscript with some of his own thoughts tossed in to John Yuri Lloyd. Lloyd then added his own foreword and finally published the book Etta Dorfer. So, essentially, it was a found manuscript of a found manuscript. It's also Aphrodite spelled backwards, so, well, no creativity points for you. <laughs> oh my god. Any proof presented as a found manuscript, a true story dictated by someone else, or a secret diary that only comes to light after a person, person's death is problematic. This is the thing. It's problematic in the same way that often with these episodes, it's like one person's eyewitness testimony. And it's like, I saw an alien spaceship. Yeah, sure you did, mate. I saw this thing and they wrote it down in a diary. Yeah, sure you did, mate. That's the response. It's like, sure you did, mate. <laughs> because it's, it just could be totally made up. My generation will be very familiar with the Blair Witch Project, the movie that started the found footage craze that is sadly still with us today. But the found manuscript trope, as it's called, was the 1800s version of lost footage. It was first used by Mary Shelley in her novel Frankenstein. It can be the diary entries, as used by both Shelley and Bram Stoker in his novel Dracula, or it can be a tale told to someone which the author then miraculously discovers and turns into hopefully a best-selling book. While some authors had no problem owning up to the fact that it was fiction, Shelley never claimed that either Dr. Frankenstein or his creation were real, not all authors were willing to do that. As this channel proves, people love a mystery. It's like the Dan Brown thing. Everything in this book is real. It's like, Dan, it's not. No, Dan. Conclusion. As long as this script is, and it is long, it's got to be like well over an hour, right? It's a brief overview of the quest 
for Agatha. There are many explorers I didn't even touch on. Nicholas Rurich, Ostendowski, and his book Beasts, Men, and Gods, and The Shaver Mystery. Though in my opinion, that was obviously a marketing ploy by Amazing Stories editor Ray Palmer to sell more magazines, to name a few. What? People trying to spin a story to sell magazines? What? No! No! Come on. I'd be happy to do a follow-up script looking at these characters in more detail if anyone is interested, but in this case, the mystery is not decoded, as there wasn't any mystery to decode in the first place. My biggest frustration writing this script was the fact that none of the stories are consistent. There are some shared ideas, opening at the polls and advanced and benevolent society, but there are far more inconsistencies. In fact, the various believers can't even seem to agree on their name for the inner world. I mean, this is it, though. It's like, why aren't all vampire stories consistent? Why aren't all zombie stories consistent? Why are zombies different in some works of fiction? Same for vampires. And it's what because it's it's right there because they're all fictional like this it's all made up it's a fictional story that someone threw in at the beginning based on real events that's what we've got here that's it silly that's conspiracy theory 101 keep your story straight on top of that none of the sources i found and i did a lot of reading could really explain why the world's governments would keep this a secret if any of this was true it would be the most significant scientific discovery in the history of mankind and if these people are as benevolent and advanced as the tales claim it's unlikely that any one country could possibly occupy them and steal their technology in order to do that all the countries of the world would need to unite and work together and i just don't see that happening we're too busy fighting each other the idea of an advanced civilization keeping an eye on us ready to step in and save us from ourselves or should we insist on destroying ourselves and the planet step up and help us recover is a reassuring tale but sadly that's all it is the earth is not hollow science has proven that and if simon doesn't have a video on earth's composition or one of his other channels yet we'll definitely need to look into that as for agatha it's a reassuring story but there is not an ounce of truth in it the only people who can save this planet are the people living on it yes and that's where today's video ends thank you for being here for this rather long episode uh, if you liked it please like and subscribe if you're listening as a podcast reviews are always appreciated and i'll see you next time everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.